Um, did I hear another one? Oh, I thought I heard somebody call me, hearing things. We're going to look tonight at the sufficiency of God, find Exodus 3 and 4. We're going to recap from uh, last week and then move into chapter 4 also. So we're going to try to cover uh, two chapters tonight. Exodus chapter 3. A lot of you weren't with us last week. A lot of people gone and sick. So like I say, we'll, we'll go back and kind of gather up some stuff there and apply it a little bit differently. And then uh, we'll move forward into uh, chapter 4. One day Moses was tending the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian. He led the flock far into the wilderness and came to Sinai, the mountain of God. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a blazing fire from the middle of a bush. Moses stared in amazement. Though the bush was engulfed in flames, it didn't burn up. This is amazing, Moses said to himself. Why isn't that bush burning up? I must go see it. When the Lord saw Moses coming to take a closer look, God called to him from the middle of the bush. Moses, Moses, here I am, Moses replied. Do not come any closer, the Lord warned. Take off your sandals, for you are standing on holy ground. I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. When Moses heard this, he covered his face because he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord told him, I have certainly seen the oppression of my people in Egypt. I have heard their cries of distress because of their harsh slave drivers. Yes, I am aware of their suffering. So I've come down to rescue them from the power of the Egyptians and lead them out of Egypt into their own fertile and spacious land. It is a land flowing with milk and honey. The land where the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites now live. Look, the cry of the people of Israel has reached me and I have seen how harshly the Egyptians abused them. Now go, for I am sending you to Pharaoh. You must lead my people Israel out of Egypt. But Moses protested to God, Who am I to appear before Pharaoh? Who am I to lead the people of Israel out of Egypt? God answered, I will be with you, and this is your sign that I am the one who has sent you. When you brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God at this very mountain. But Moses protested, if I go to the people of Israel and tell them, the God of your ancestors has sent me to you, they will ask me, what is his name? Then what shall I tell them? God replied to Moses, I am who I am. Say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, Yahweh, the God of your ancestors, the God of Abraham, The God of Isaac and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my eternal name, my name to remember for all generations. Now go and call together all the elders of Israel. Tell them, Yahweh, the God of your ancestors, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob has appeared to me. He told me, I've been watching closely and I see how the Egyptians are treating you. I've promised to rescue you from your oppression in Egypt. I will lead you to a land flowing with milk and honey. 
the land where the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites now live. The elders of Israel will accept your message. Then you and the elders must go to the king of Egypt and tell him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us. So please let us take a three-day journey into the wilderness to offer sacrifices to the Lord our God. But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless a mighty hand forces him. So I will raise my hand and strike the Egyptians, performing all kinds of miracles among them. Then at last he will let you go. And I will cause the Egyptians to look favorably on you. They will give you gifts when you go so you will not leave empty-handed. Every Israelite woman will ask for articles of silver and gold and find clothing from her Egyptian neighbors and from the foreign women in their houses. You will dress your sons and daughters with these, stripping the Egyptians of their wealth. But Moses protested again. What if they won't believe me or listen to me? What if they say the Lord never appeared to you? Then the Lord asked him, what is that in your hand? A shepherd's staff, Moses replied. Throw it down on the ground, the Lord told him. So Moses threw down the staff and it turned into a snake. Moses jumped back. Then the Lord told him, reach out and grab its tail. So Moses reached out and grabbed it and it turned back into a shepherd's staff in his hand. Perform this sign, the Lord told him. Then they will believe that the Lord, the God of their ancestors, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, really has appeared to you. Then the Lord said to Moses, Now put your hand inside your cloak. So Moses put his hand inside his cloak, and when he took it out again, his hand was white as snow with a severe skin disease. Now put your hand back into your cloak, the Lord said. So Moses put his hand back in, and when he took it out again... It was as healthy as the rest of his body. The Lord said to Moses, If they do not believe you and are not convinced by the first miraculous sign, they will be convinced by the second sign. And if they don't believe you or listen to you even after these two signs, then take some water from the Nile River and pour it out on the dry ground. When you do, the water from the Nile will turn to blood on the ground. But Moses pleaded with the Lord, Oh Lord, I'm not very good with words. I never have been, and I'm not now, even though you've spoken to me. I get tongue-tied, and my words get tangled. Then the Lord asked Moses, Who makes a person's mouth? Who decides whether people speak or do not speak, hear or do not hear, see or do not see? Is it not I, the Lord? Now go. I will be with you as you speak, and I will instruct you in what to say. But Moses again pleaded, Lord, please send anyone else. Then the Lord became angry with Moses. All right, he said, what about your brother Aaron the Levite? I know he speaks well, and look, he's on his way to meet you now. He will be delighted to see you. Talk to him and put the words in his mouth. I will be with both of you as you speak, and I will instruct you both in what to do. Aaron will be your spokesman to the people. He will be your mouthpiece, and you will stand in the place of God for him, telling him what to say. And take your shepherd's staff with you and use it to perform the miraculous signs I have shown you. So Moses went back home to Jethro, his father-in-law, Please let me return to my relatives in Egypt, Moses said. I don't even know if they are still alive. Go in peace, Jethro replied.
Before Moses left Midian, the Lord said to him, Return to Egypt, for all those who wanted to kill you have died. So Moses took his wife and sons, put them on a donkey, and headed back to the land of Egypt. In his hand he carried the staff of God. And the Lord told Moses, When you arrive back in Egypt, go to Pharaoh and perform all the miracles I have empowered you to do. But I will harden his heart so he will refuse to let the people go. Then you will tell him, this is what the Lord says, Israel is my firstborn son. I commanded you, let my son go so he can worship me. But since you have refused, I will now kill your firstborn son. On the way to Egypt at a place where Moses and his family had stopped for the night, the Lord confronted him and was about to kill him. But Moses' wife, Zipporah, took a flint knife and circumcised her son. She touched his feet with foreskin and said, Now you are a bridegroom of blood to me. When she said a bridegroom of blood, she was referring to the circumcision. After that, the Lord left him alone. Now the Lord had said to Aaron, Go out into the wilderness to meet Moses. So Aaron went and met Moses at the mountain of God, and he embraced him. Moses then told Aaron everything the Lord had commanded him to say, and he told him about the miraculous signs the Lord had commanded him to perform. Then Moses and Aaron returned to Egypt and called all the elders of Israel together. Aaron told them everything the Lord had told Moses, and Moses performed the miraculous signs as they watched. Then the people of Israel were convinced that the Lord had sent Moses and Aaron. When they heard that the Lord was concerned about them and had seen their misery, they bowed down and worshipped. Folks, let's remember tonight that God is very much at work in the world. You remember that occasion in John chapter 5 when the Pharisees were criticizing Jesus for working on the Sabbath. And you remember Jesus' response? He said, my father is working up till now, and I too am working. God is always at work in his world. Now folks, we see this over and over again in the Bible, don't we? We see it over and over again in the Old Testament. God raised up a nation He called Abraham to leave where he was and go to a new land that God was going to show him. They were to be a light. And then what happened? Through his descendants, we've covered what happened with Joseph and how Joseph rose to prime minister in the land. But then we saw back in Exodus chapter 1, verse 8, that we were being set up for a whole new scenario. We were told there that all of Joseph and his brothers and family members had died, and a new Pharaoh who came to power who did not know anything about Joseph. And so back in Exodus 1... We were told, it was hinted at there, that things are fixing to take a bad turn for Joseph's descendants. Well, in chapter 2, we saw God at work preparing for their deliverance. Uh, He's preserving the life of his servant. It's amazing how God works. 
As I mentioned to you last week, probably you've been able to look back on your own life and see how God was preparing you to do something before you even realized God was preparing you. That's what he did with Moses. Then in verse 1 of chapter 3, we see Moses is being out about his business. He didn't even realize what was about to transpire. And God appeared to him in the burning bush and called him and commissioned him. And Moses learned that God had a divine assignment and purpose for him. Now tonight, what I want you to see, beginning in verse 11, we kind of cut off for the most part in verse 10 last week, even though we read on through the chapter. But in verse 11, we see that Moses doubts himself. He doubts himself. Think again with me about the verses leading up to that. How God is telling Moses that he's seen the heartache of his people. God has not turned his back on his children that are hurting. God never turns his back on his children. All through the Bible we see that God sees man's need and he cares. And so what does God do? God raises up men and women to go and be his mouthpiece and his ears, his hands, and his feet, right? God intervenes. I think of that occasion in Matthew chapter 9 when Jesus saw the multitudes coming out to him. We're told that his heart was moved with compassion because the masses were like sheep without a shepherd. And Jesus told his disciples, pray to the Lord of the harvest that he would cast out more, it's a violent word, ekbalo in the Greek, that he would hurl out workers into his harvest field. The same word that was used in the Gospels of Jesus casting out demons. He said, pray to the Lord of the harvest that he would cast his children out into the harvest fields. God commissioned Moses, he commissions us. Folks, when God looks at lostness in the world and he looks at all of the human misery that surrounds lostness, he calls us to do ministry. And we need to get a vision for that and we need to be his servants. Well, we see here that Moses looked at his life And he didn't feel adequate. After all, who is adequate for a task like this? Who can possibly be adequate to be God's representative? To be God's spokesperson? Nobody's worthy in the flesh. Moses doesn't feel worthy, so he begins asking a series of questions. Now, the questions reflect the inner struggle that Moses is having. He had questions about his own identity. He had questions about God's identity and power. He also had questions about how the people would respond to him. So what's question number one? We'll also kind of see tonight 
questions and responses. Moses' questions and God's responses. What's question number one? Am I really at it? Am I the right man for the job? Who am I? Remember, Pharaoh had wanted to kill Moses. His picture was on the post office walls in, in Egypt. He was the most wanted man in Egypt. He felt inadequate. After all, in his mind, all he's been doing is tending sheep. And so he asked the question, who am I? Now, don't misunderstand the question. I don't think Moses is having an identity crisis. In fact, I think if you've been by yourself for 40 years out in the middle of nowhere tending sheep, you've probably had a chance to get pretty well in touch with yourself, right? Moses' question focuses on his identity in the sense of, am I able to do this? Am I adequate to do this? In other words, God, I'm not sure I have what it takes. Are you sure I'm the right one for the job? I think somebody else would be more capable. Somebody else would be more able. Somebody else would be more gifted. Moses might also be thinking, hey, I took my best shot 40 years ago when I killed that Egyptian and it didn't turn out so good for me. That's when he was running ahead of God, right? So this is Moses at this point. What's Moses seeing? Moses is seeing the barriers. He's seeing the hindrances. Too often when uh, confronted with opportunities to be God's ambassadors, we do the very same thing. We see the, the barriers, the potential dangers. We make up all kinds of scenarios. What if, what if, what if? Have you ever done that? You know, churches can do that too, right? God can call his people as a corporate body to do something. Well, what if, you know, it might cost too much. It might be too difficult. So even churches can do this. Christians all the time do stuff like this. Who am I? We're going to see later on in the book of Numbers with the 12 spies. What did 10 of them say? We can't do it. They were giants. What, what did they compare themselves to? Grasshoppers. We're just like little grasshoppers in the eyes of, of these giants. We can't do this. We're not adequate. We're not strong enough. Moses is looking at himself here up against Pharaoh. Who's Pharaoh? Well, not only is he the king of Egypt, but remember what we've covered before about the 2,000 Egyptian gods 
that they had all the gods, all the idols. The pharaoh of the land was seen as one of these Egyptian gods. I mean, obviously he's not a God. There's only one true and living God. But I'm just saying Moses, you know, here he has been a shepherd and Egyptians don't even like shepherds. And I'm supposed to be going up against the king of the land, one of the most powerful nations around at the time. And the Egyptians see their pharaoh as being a god? I can't do this. And so Moses feels like he's the wrong man for the job. Again, we do the same. God, you need somebody younger. You need somebody stronger. You need somebody smarter. We come down with the grasshopper syndrome, right? We do. But folks, we've already seen coming through the book of Genesis that God calls some pretty questionable questionable characters, doesn't he? And some weak characters. And then what does he do? He equips them to do what he's called them to do. Because just like we said, I think it was two weeks ago, that if God called the strongest, the mightiest, what would everybody say? Well, sure he was able to go and do that. Look at who he is. But God chooses the nobodies. Paul talks about that in 1 Corinthians 1. So that everybody stands back and says, look at what God has done. Well, what's God's response to Moses? What do we see there in verse 12? What's God telling? I will be with you. Moses, get your eyes off of yourself. And put your eyes on me. God's going to tell Joshua the same thing after Moses. Moses, I mean uh, Joshua, keep your eyes on me. Be strong and courageous. Because I am going to be with you. By the way, what's Christ tell us at the end of the Great Commission? I will be with you Always, even to the end of the age. So again, God's saying, Moses, you're looking in the wrong direction. You're looking at yourself, and you need to be looking at me. Here was Moses, a nobody, but he had God. Actually, when you factor God in, the balance of power was in Moses' favor, right? Right? So when you start saying, God, who am I? I can't. Why me? You need to remember God's presence. He will never call you to do something, but what he will not, with the call, be with you to get it done. Well, secondly, I want you to see tonight that Moses doubts God. Look at verse 13. Moses protested, if I go to the people of Israel and tell them the God of your ancestors has sent me to you, they will ask me, what is his name? Then what should I tell them? And so here Moses 
has question number two. And what's question number two? God, who are you? Who are you? Probably Moses is stalling a bit. He might be thinking, okay, God, you won that, that last matchup. You, you beat me. Um, I see that. But if I'm to remember that you're with me, who are you? Are you really able to help me? He's asking for God's identity. He's asking for God's name. Now, you've heard me mention this before. What's the significance of a name to the Hebrews? Talk to me. They think if you know the name that you have power. Yes. Yes. And it tells you something about the identity of that person too. We just name anybody any old thing, right? <coughs> but they took greater care. Moses, after all, named Moses, drawn out of the water. Jacob, trickster, God changed his name to Israel, one who's now a prince with God. And so Moses is wanting to know something about God's character that will be revealed in God's name. So what's God's response? Look at verse 14. I am who I am or I will be what I will be. Now there's a couple of things about this name that I want you to see. First of all, granted, there's a bit of mystery in this name. God is saying my name is so great you can't fully understand me. There's no way you can fully know who I am simply by knowing my name. But there's also something revealing about this name. He's not only hiding something mysterious that Moses can't know everything about him, He's also revealing something about himself. He's revealing that he will be the one who is all sufficient. I am who I am. I will be who I will be. In other words, Moses, you and Aaron and the Israelites, all you need to know about my name is that I will be everything you need. You will not find any lack of sufficiency in me. That's what he's revealing to Moses. The stress is on the absolute adequacy of God. The absolute adequacy of God. Folks, Think with me a moment. Come into the New Testament, the Gospel of John. You remember when Jesus picked up on this? The I am statements. What did Jesus say about himself? You remember any of those? I'm the bread of life. I'm the, 
I'm the way, the truth, and the life. I'm the light of the world. I'm the living water. I'm the gate. I'm the alpha and omega, the first and the last. I'm the good shepherd. I'm the true vine. And what's that big one in chapter 11? I'm the resurrection and the life. Yeah. For every need we have, the Lord is sufficient. Now, notice what God tells Moses at the end of chapter 3. He tells him that the elders are going to believe him. Moses is worrying about a scenario that is not even going to transpire. And and God's assuring him, they're, they're going to believe you. And moreover... Time I get done with Pharaoh and the Egyptians, they're going to believe you too that I've sent you and, and they're going to be eager to drive you out of the land and when they drive you out of the land, you're going to plunder the Egyptians. They're going to give you some of their material wealth. You're not going to go empty-handed. Well, thirdly tonight, I want you to see that Moses doubts his success. Look at verse 1 of chapter 4, but Moses protested again. What if they won't believe me or listen to me? What if they say the Lord never appeared to you? And in other words, they haven't seen the burning bush. God, they haven't heard your voice the way I have. If I show up, And tell them all this, they might just think I've been out in the sun too long. (coughs) This is a pretty practical question here or concern, isn't it? When God calls us to do something in the way that only God can, or God puts something on somebody's heart and they just can't get away from it, A big issue is the fact that in those that we go to witness to or those who might join in to help us, they haven't had the same experience that we have, right? And so it might be hard to get them to buy in. For instance... If a Sunday school teacher tells his or her class, God's really put it on my heart that my class is supposed to do this. God's really put this on my heart. Or a pastor says to his church, God's really put, man, God's really spoken to me about this. Well, the others who have not had that same experience might take a little while to get buy-in, right? That's what Moses is concerned about. So what's God's response? God points Moses to four things. We're going to talk about the significance of that in a moment. What's the four things? The staff, 
the leper's hand, the water to blood, the Nile, the water of the Nile to blood, and then Aaron to be his mouthpiece. Now, what's the significance? I mean, that's three signs there, and then God's going to send Aaron to be his mouthpiece. But the three signs, what's the significance in the Old Testament of either two or three? Witnesses. Yes. Matters being established by at least two or three witnesses. And so God is giving three miraculous signs that will be witnesses. It won't just be one thing that the people could say, oh, you know what, that might have just been a fluke. Might have been a coincidence. No, it's not that. So God says, okay, I'm going to add a second miraculous sign to it. And if that's not enough, I'm going to add a third. So that my word will be confirmed by multiple witnesses. Well, what's the first thing? He says, what's in your hand? And Moses says, what? Staff. Now, let's, let's kind of use some analogies tonight to make this real simple for us. I mean, it's not a staff in our hands, but what's in your hand if... What's in your life if you're saved? What's the first thing? A changed life in the presence of the Holy Spirit. Right? A changed life that will certainly be a witness to those around you that God has touched you and God saved you. A changed life. If any man be in Christ, he's a new creation. When Jesus healed the garrison demoniac, he said, go and show your people the great things God has done for you. They're going to see the change in your life and they're going to know God's done something. So if you think about it, you've got something very close up and personal. You've got the testimony of a changed life, right? And then what goes along with that changed life? You've got a testimony that goes along with it, right? Test, testifying that it's God that's done that in you. And then God will provide sufficient resources. Never have God's people embarked upon an assignment from God that they didn't find what they needed to do it. As meager as Moses' resources were, they were going to be sufficient. The lesson for Moses was that he simply needed to make available to God what God had already given him. I mean, here's a, the, your staff, and then the, your hand. Put your hand in, and it'll be leprous, and then put it in again, it'll be 
hole. And then the, the water right there in front of you at the Nile. Moses, there's things right in front of you that I'm going to use. We need to be willing to release to God, surrender to Him what He's already given us and pick it up and use it for His glory. Again, God was giving Moses three signs to show the people that God had indeed called him and God had sent him and God was going to use him and God was going to accomplish everything that God said he was going to do. And then because Moses complained about being of slow speech, God told him that he's going to send Aaron. And look, he's already coming to meet you. And I'm, you're going to tell him, and he's going to believe you too. And so, what's, again, what's God doing? God is taking away every bit of skepticism or doubt that Moses is offering up to God. I mean, God's getting him back into a corner. The only way Moses could get out of this now is just flat out refuse and say no. Because every single excuse Moses is offering <laughs> God's got an answer for it, right? God's, God's got an answer for, to Moses for it. Now, there's something very puzzling at the end of the chapter, at the end of chapter 4, about circumcision. What's the point there? What in the world is going on in those verses? Well, back since the days of Abraham, what had been the sign of the covenant? Circumcision. So back since Abraham, the Hebrews have circumcised their sons. Here's Moses, a Hebrew. Now, yes, he was raised in Pharaoh's household, but he's a Hebrew, and he's identified with the Hebrews, and yet Moses has failed to circumcise his son, give his son the sign of the covenant. So here is a leader, and yet he has not obeyed God in this matter. So what's the big deal? What's that show? It shows us that no one is exempt. Just because Moses is going to be the leader of God's people does not mean that Moses gets a free pass. It demonstrates for us that God is a holy God. Just because you serve God does not mean that God is going to tolerate sin and disobedience in your life. In fact, what's the New Testament say about this? It's time that judgment begins at the house of God. Not among unbelievers, but with God's people. 
People sometimes think because they serve God, there are certain things they can overlook about their lives. Oh, God won't care. After all, I'm a deacon. I'm a Sunday school teacher. Look at what I do to serve God. That's faulty logic. God does not overlook disobedience. Here's Moses, a leader, and he's not done what was very basic for all the Hebrew males to do. Moses can't continue until this matter is taken care of. Again, God's a holy God. I want to give you five lessons tonight. Number one, and most of these are just reiteration of points we've made. God walks with us. He will be with us. God walks with us. He will be with us. Secondly, God is all sufficient to meet your needs. God is all sufficient to meet your needs. Thirdly, make available what we have for Him. Make available. Sometimes it's just obvious stuff right in front of your nose. Fourth, trust God to overcome your weaknesses. And then lastly, continue to reflect on your life to see if there are areas where you have not obeyed God. Number one, God walks with us. He'll be with us. Number two, God is all sufficient to meet your needs. Number three, make available what we have for Him. And sometimes it's stuff, the obvious stuff right in front of your nose. Number four, trust God to overcome your weaknesses. And number five, continue to reflect on your life to see if there are areas where you have not obeyed God. Think about your own life. Simple ways, simple but profound ways God may have called you to do something. And obvious things that you have right at your fingertips that you could use for him and you're not even thinking about that I mean who would think about a simple staff simple thing have you surrendered everything about your life to him resources for him it's easy to overlook some of the obvious stuff 